We are going to energize the country. We need to wake up and smell the coffee. No more Mr. Nice Guy. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order! Hello and welcome to the Debated Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. And in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by George Fairhurst, who is chair of the Fabian Society in Yorkshire and the Humber, is uh, the membership officer for Open Labour in West Yorkshire, and is the host of Red Rose Reporting. Welcome to the podcast, George. Hi, Will. Thanks for having me on. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you on. Uh, so my first question is, what made you um, decide to start Red Roses Reporting? It's a very good question. So Red Rose Reporting is a combination of my actual passion to understand young labour and also the need to pass university. Um, So I've had the pleasure for the last few years at studying at Leeds Trinity University doing a degree in journalism and politics, uh, for which I have been the only person on that degree, which... um, is brilliant if you've never done a degree just where you're the only person on it because essentially you feel like you fall through the cracks a wee bit. Now, um, instead of doing a dissertation like another normal student would have done, uh, my course turned around to me and said, hey, do you want to instead create a website, do your own reporting on it, and that can be your dissertation? So because I didn't fancy writing... um, down a massive like, thesis and everything else because um, I don't see myself as particularly brainy. I merrily agreed and Red Rose Reporting was born. Um, its first incarnation, which we don't talk about, was a disastrous attempt at trying to record what was going on during the uh, autumn election last year and also what was going off in the trade union movements. Now, those efforts kind of just came to nothing because I discovered it's incredibly hard to do those kind of reportings when you only have like minuscule amount of experience. So instead, over the summer, I decided to report the Young Labour elections because I didn't really know much about Young Labour at the time. Mm. I've been a party member since 2017, and there was the 2018 Young Labour elections. I wasn't even aware I was a member of it when it happened. And I thought it'd be a very good opportunity to essentially get good marks by actually just doing what I love doing, which is finding out about political institutions and how they operate and the characters within them. Um, and essentially that's why I ended up creating the podcast and going from there. Um, you mentioned the uh, young Labour elections. From having done podcasts with, with people involved in those elections, what has been your general uh, impression of the candidates and uh, the campaign as a whole? Well, uh, I think that talking about the candidates and then talking about the campaign are two very different um, conversations. <laughs> We'll start with the candidates, because I think that's what we can be more positive about. Across the spectrum, in every group, there have been tremendous candidates. There are people who I don't necessarily agree with, but who are actually quite lovely, um, you know, chatting to them. And it's not about, oh, we want to win because that way we'll defeat the moderates and we'll get a socialist Labour or we'll take it back from like these entries. Everyone has just been running on these campaigns centered around actual issues and I I think that's brilliant because Young Labour is an institution which is riddled with these kind of problems that have been going for many years now. Um, For instance it's been trying to safeguard all of its members uh, which is 100,000 people the size of the entirety of the Liberal Democrats on no money Mm. which I mean I've tried doing stuff on no money with trying to safeguard about 12 people running a uni society and I found that difficult so God knows how you know, a national institution's doing that. Mm. Um, and the candidates themselves have identified this and they're running on platforms, which I see is genuinely quite positive. And I, I think it's fantastic. Then we turn to the campaigning and good God, is it a different story? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
it's really sad because most people who I talk to, they're quite positive about the people they want to vote for. And that's generally how it is. They hold these little rallies and campaigns inside of Young Labour operate a bit differently to other ones. You tend to have about a turnout of 20% if you're on a very, very good year. Now, that essentially means that both sides of the party, because it's run by these slates that get picked. So, you know, you have like the Labour Twin slate, Momentum slate, Open Labour. Uh, These slates just generally try and rally people who are already subscribed to their ideas. Um, Mm. So they, because they know that the only people who are going to be voting these things are people who already are like switched on. They already know what's going on. They know the deal. They don't try and reach out across to these this, this mass of people who don't vote already. So with that, the campaign can turn quite visceral. Um, and I, I mean, I talked to um, Abi Berinsky from Open Labour about this. And I mean, we've had one candidate for the under-18s rep who was forced to quit after she tried to get onto the momentum slate and failed and then said I was going to continue as an independent because I believe in the, the issues that I'm running on. And as a result, she was then dogpiled on a lot of posts. She was sent harassing messages, death threats, rape threats, you name it. And then subsequently dropped out and has then since just really tried to stay out of the way. And it's horrible. It really is a horrible campaign because it's all done online where people can just get carried away and, you know, they can attack people because what you're attacking is not a person. You're attacking Mm. a profile picture. You're attacking a bunch of pixels. You don't see the person inside that account. And as a result, people have just been really insanely, like, quite angry towards one another, which, again, like, to bring it back, that's why, like, safeguarding has become, like, a massive issue with the people I've interviewed about this. And there really is a need for a change in the culture of not just the elections, but Young Labour itself and how it operates. Do you think that some of the the um, negative uh, actions, the horrible negative actions that um, you mentioned there, do you think some of that has been exacerbated by the fact that it's been pretty much only online because of the situation with coronavirus. Do you think that if it had been more in person that we wouldn't have seen the same scale of, of visceral attacks? Oh, of course, absolutely. I mean, the nature of online campaigning is that you only have to do the slightest thing for the tone of it to go from overwhelming and positive to absolutely terrible. Mm. I mean, when you chat to people online, just not, not even just talking like in terms of elections, when you're talking to your friends, if you want to show that you're really like, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to use like a bit of audacious language here, a bit pissed off with, mm. you know, your mate, you put a full stop at the end of your sentence, don't you? Proper punctuation yeah. is how you show to people that you're annoyed. So when it's that easy to come off as like a bit curse and a bit, you know, unfriendly, it, it really then, um, as you say, exacerbates the problem because then it's so easy to get drawn into these arguments where suddenly the person you're talking to is not just wrong, they're a complete moron in your eyes and also they're actually the rudest person you've ever come across. And the nature of actually talking about these issues online is that you're doing this in the public sphere. So everyone can actually see what you're saying. And you don't want to walk away from the debate without having done every opportunity to show to your followers that you are like, you know, you're quite uh, wired in and you're not going to take it when someone talks to you like this. So even if you lose the debate, you've gained clout in your followers' eyes. So it's almost like you're rewarded for being like hyper-aggressive and hyper-controvert hyper-confrontational. So I absolutely agree with you that online has just made it worse. Do you think that this is something that um, exists on perhaps a a smaller scale in some of the other um, 
uh, socialist and left-wing societies that are out there like the Fabian Society and Open Labour? Or do you think that it only really comes to the forefront when you're having clashes between different slates and different factions within the Labour Party? I think it only really comes forward when you're kind of in a position where there's slates. So everyone by the nature is not this hyper-confrontational um, person. Even online circles, I've been, obviously, as you said, your interest spiel, I'm involved with the Fabian Society, I'm involved with Open Labour, um, and, you know, they're both very broad churches, and we have discussions in there. I've told people before that I think they're wrong, and we, we still come away from it friends, and I think it's personal. It's quite possible to have discussions online and have internal elections without, you know, sending harassing messages to each other or inviting all your followers to come and look at how much of an idiot this person is for believing in a certain thing. Mm. Um, now, you mentioned uh, Fabian Society there, and I know that you're um, chair of the uh, Yorkshire and Humber uh, branch of the Young Fabian Society. Um, as part of that experience, what do you think you have learned, not just about the Fabian Society, but about the way that the Fabian Society works with the Labour Party? Okay. Uh, first thing I've learned about the Fabian Society is that it is amazing. Um <laughs> Now, most people, when they come on and they talk about, you know, how they've inherited some sort of leadership role that they're like, you know, did it for years and they were already as a member. Um, I've not even, I think I've only just served out my first year as being a member of the society. Um, I signed up at Brighton Conference in 2019 because I taught the year off this guy, um, Ben, for like about half an hour. And if he's listening, I can only apologise now for what he had to undergo. Um, and... I then spent about four months quite inactive because I tried the first version of Red Rose reporting, which went about as well as I've previously described. And there was all the election stuff. And it was in that weird point after the election, I think, where everyone was just quite depressed and taking stock after the colossal defeat that we suffered in December. Mm. And I realised I had this membership for the Fame Society. So I decided to look into it and properly try and see if I could do anything with it. Because I'd signed up on the rough basis that I got sent free insightful magazines and that it was a think tank and there'd be events but I looked on the online event series for January and everything was based down in London. So I, I sent off what in hindsight was quite a snippy email saying, hey, why is there nothing up north? Cheers. Yeah. And they, they got back to me and said, all right, you feel this way, host your own event, but not in kind of like a, you know, you think you can do better, prove it. It was like, a, okay, well, we hear you. Let's, let's try and fix this. So we then st- I then started drafting up this event idea, which then collapsed because of coronavirus. And... I was trying to figure out what actually happened beforehand to any kind of Fabian society in the North because I was trying to get more involved with it as mm. lockdown started and I found I got a little free time. And about two weeks later, I set up the um, Yorkshire and Humberside uh, Fabian Society for the Young Fabians um, as chair. <laughs> and it was part of this humongous push, which the chair of the whole organisation, Adam, has been doing, where he, he basically wants to make sure that like, if a member wants to do something, just go for it. Just give them the resources and let them go for it, which I, I find incredibly franchising. Like it's it's brought me in so much, and like I've spent the summer really learning what it means to be a Fabian um, by reading books on a society. I've looked past lectures. I've been hosting events. We're in the middle of researching our first pamphlet. We've got a podcast coming out in the next few weeks, and it's all just going. And it feels terrific to say this all started for me just feeling a little bit pissed off again. I presume then that um, your experience with Open Labour was perhaps uh, a little bit different, unless you're saying that you set up the Open Labour Society in West Yorkshire as well, in which case, congratulations <laughs> on... 
Oh, no, I, I, I can't. I mean, West Yorkshire is the home of Alex Sobel, the, in, the guy who set up the entire thing. So, of course, mm. I'm not behind that. Now, <laughs> Open Label is a very different kettle of fish. I heard, heard of the organisation before the election, but um, it was after the election when we were all doing our own version of post-mortems on Twitter. I'm sure you remember mm. when everyone figured that they had the answer and it tended to be either you're in the camp which entirely blamed Brexit <laughs> or you entirely blamed Corbyn. And... Um, it was just in the middle of all that where I saw this space of activists who were saying, why can't it be both? And why can't it also be a bunch of other reasons? And I was really taken with that. Um, so I, I had a look at Open Labour and uh, I'd just been paid for that month, which was the only real saving grace of December. And um, I then decided, why not? I joined. And I then in January went to the Open Labour Hustings for Leadership, which was just the most incredible experience I've had as an activist. Um, because before then, I'd never really found my space in the Labour Party. Um, I, I, I don't really, really fit into any of the big camps of like momentum or progress, which makes me sound really edgy, but trust me, I'm not. Um, <laughs> so I went and there was just this lovely mix of people and everyone was quite friendly and everyone wanted to know where you were or do I follow you on Twitter or um, do you want to come and like, you know, be part of this or do you want to write for something else? And it, it was just the most positive experience I've had in politics in like the three years since I've joined the Labour Party. And, uh, yeah, go on, sorry. Uh, sorry, I was just, just going to say, you mentioned um, the general election there and the post-mortems uh, from it. I know from, um, before we started recording, that you uh, were involved in canvassing for uh, seats within the, uh, the Red Wall, which of course at the general election we saw uh, fall, uh, qu- quite a bit of it fall to the Conservatives. Do you think that, as you said, that was a binary thing between Corbyn and Brexit? Or do you think that in those seats, it was much more complicated than that? I'll tell you what, I can answer your question, whilst I also give you a bit more facts on open labour. So let's do that, shall we? <laughs> so um, in February 2020, we had the inaugural meeting of the West Yorkshire Open Labour Meeting, for which I was made membership officer unopposed because the role was going and I wanted to know more about the seats. I campaigned in the last election up and down the county. So I was in Pudsey, uh, West Leeds, uh, North West Leeds, um, Wakefield, uh, Morley and Outwood, Dewsbury and Keighley. So I went to those seats, I did door knocking, and I think between them all, they basically, any kind of geographical makeup you want, it's there. And I think only two of at least Northwest, returned a Labour MP. The rest were gone. Now, what I think caused it is a lot of things. I'm going to um, borrow the colourful words of Alex Sobel during the inaugural meeting, which was he basically discussed how the MPs were in this room before they decided they were going to vote for the election to happen. And they were assured that the Labour doorstop app would work. They were assured that we were equipped to fight a winter election. Now, I'm, g- I'm going to ask you a question. Did either of those things come true? No. <laughs> yes, no. Now, that's well and good where you've got seats like, uh, you know, the Leeds-based ones, where you can draw upon a massive plethora of activists and you can essentially, you know, you can make up for the shortfalls by making sure you've got lots and lots of motivated people who are going to come out and do stuff for you and do terrific things. But what about if you don't live in a seat with a large student population or a large active Labour Party membership? Um, 
And what about if you live in a seat where you're being squeezed by the Lib Dems, as I discussed with my friend Jacob Allen in Guildford? The Red Wall, um, in terms of polling, had been going kind of away from us since about 2005, um, which you can kind of see in the trends of the seats because um, Mollion Atwood's the prime example. In 2010, Ed Balls won it. 2015, Ed Balls lost it by a narrow majority. 2017, Andrea. Uh, Jenkins, whilst there was a bit of an anti-Tory vote trend, she actually increased her majority. Mm. Not by much, but just slightly. And then um, in Left left, uh, yeah, left Behind, that's what the uh, book by uh, Patrick was called, um, it, it makes reference to the fact that in the surprise poll that was released in September, Moyne Outwood was still technically a marginal seat, but only on paper. And we saw that in the election when Andrew Jenkins went from about 2,000 seat majority to 10,000. I think that stuff like Brexit and the unpopularity of Jeremy Corbyn kind of just accelerated the process. Um, it's, it's quite difficult, um, I think, especially in seats like Mullion Atwood, where, um, you know, th- these are areas like that and Pontefract, which are hard affected by the effects of like a no-deal Brexit. And you can go to people and you'll tell them, like, look, if this happens, you're going to lose your jobs. But around here, people have been facing austerity for about a decade now, and they feel everything's been cut to the bone. And they just feel unlistened to and like people are just leaving them behind. I was just going to say, which is why then when you come out and you say, you know, you propose a policy like ours last year, which was essentially us knocking on the doors and going, hey, we listened to what you said in the 2016 vote and we know you want to leave. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to give you a second chance to say you're definitely sure you want to leave. <laughs> that, that doesn't come off well. And mm-hmm. I, I say this as someone who... Whilst a bit of a Eurosceptic doesn't necessarily think Brexit, well, I've not been convinced since the process started that Brexit would be a tremendous success because it's being led by a bunch of incompetent um, so-and-sos. Do you think that um, Brexit, as we uh, discussed that, do you think that uh, Brexit will be delivered in any way that will benefit the North? Or, I mean, this seems a bit of an obvious question given what I'm, I'm sure your answer will be or do you think that it will have a negative impact on the north of england my obvious answer is it's going to have a negative impact um in my region yorkshire we have a, about one in five jobs are somehow linked to the transport industry or basically by what we call the just-in-time economy uh, what that is is a series of the remaining industrial plants so like car manufacturers plastic works now they rely primarily by operating by having these uh, deliveries made every day with vital components so the production line can carry on. Any disruptions, even if it's just by day, can seriously impact how these factory operations work. And then there's the very fact that like, we have like, you know, Euro centres in Castleford. Mm. And, you know, if we've got a no-deal Brexit with Europe, that's, <laughs> I don't think I really need to go into why that's a bad thing for mm. people whose incomes rely on Euro ports. Now, um, this is obvious stuff to say, so I'll say something edgy, which is that I think it didn't have to be this way. It, it genuinely didn't. I, and I, I don't blame people who voted Leave, um, mostly because when the referendum was there, I probably would have voted Leave as well. Mm. It's because it, essentially what we were sold were, you know, it seemed like it would work. And as I said, people at that point had suffered about six years of austerity. They felt quite fed up and that nothing was going to change. So they voted for change. And that's, it's kind of why, like when people talk about Brexit, um, I almost have this kind of sense of sadness about it because 
um, you know, there has been a very strong part of the Labour tradition which has been traditional Eurosceptic. And if you go back and listen to speeches by the likes of Michael Foote and what have you, they make these brilliant arguments about, um, you know, English democracy, which are, mm. are beautiful to listen to. Now, obviously, this is not the word you typically expect from an open Labour member because, by tradition, we're quite pro-EU. Mm. And that's, that's fair. And that's kind of part and parcel why I'm a member of these societies because I'm allowed to have these opinions and these thoughts and I don't receive a torrent of abuse or hate from it. I receive, you know, fair enough, understand where you're coming from, here's some counterpoints to consider. And I would actually say that during the process of being part of Open Labour and Fame Society, I have become a bit more, uh, less severe sceptic, shall we say. Do you think that part of the reason that, I mean, you talk about... Um people wanting uh, change as, as part and parcel of the reason that people voted leave. Do you think that part of the reason wasn't just that, it was also down to a flawed um, in, yes, whatever you want to call it, campaign, a, a, a campaign to stay in Europe. Do you think that that campaign didn't in any way uh, positively or positively enough express why so many people in the Labour Party and in the rest of the UK wanted to, to stay in the European Union. Do you think it was the, a, a failure of our, our articulation? Well, um, what this is part of was the failure of me to actually pay attention at the time, uh, because when the Brexit referendum happened, I actually was nowhere near involved in UK politics. I was completely obsessed with US politics led by the, you know, I, I was, my, my first political awakening was watching the, the Bernie Sanders 2016 presidential campaign. That really is what sparked things for me. However, I will answer your question. Don't worry. <laughs> um, so I believe the reason why IN failed as you say, is because of the fact it was led by people who kind of thought they knew what they were doing. Um, I've been listening really to kind of the descriptions of, uh, oh, what's it called now? Uh, Tim Shipman's books, which um, if you're a politico, they are the Bible. You, you go and read them because they are like the nearest thing we've got to like historians, Anthony Beaver or so and so. Um, and you kind of get this sense of why it won when you actually don't read the book on Brexit. You read the book afterwards, Fallout, which describes the 2017 campaign for May, because you get this, they talk about this brilliant dichotomy between uh, the vote leave mavericks and then kind of like the stern and proper Tory party campaigners. The reason why in failed was because of the fact it was quite complacent and it trusted its own systems, and it had an election-winning formula. Cameron was, at this point, in my belief, quite drunk on the success of having crushed the Lib Dems in the AV referendum in 2011. He had beaten the SNP in 2014 with the Scottish referendum, and he trounced Labour by winning an election, which nobody really expected him to come away with a majority with. So at this point, Cameron and a lot of the internal Tory campaigners just thought, eh, we'll win. You know, that, and that really is the sense that you get when you look at things like the in campaign, how it was run, and just thought if they just said enough negative things that it would go away. And there wasn't this really impassioned defense of Europe, which I mean, people might have been susceptible to. I mean, in reality, these are all like, you know, I could go into hypotheticals of how, you know, it could have won, but mm. it serves no good to do that because what's happened has happened, and mm. we're about four years down the line now. And yeah. 
um, we still don't know what Brexit fully will look like because part of it has happened and part of it is still happening right now with the negotiations for a trade deal. And the, the path we're being led down, I think, is it's getting increasingly darker. You know, we've, we've broken international law, at least we're planning to, and we've got the, the mecha- mechanisms ready to do that. We've got um, plans for a no-deal Brexit on top of the COVID-19 crisis accelerating further and further, and there's just increasing sense of something's got to give. Um, now, looking uh, towards the future, next year we're going to be having local elections. They're meant to happen uh, this year. What, what's your sense of how your area you think will vote uh, in these elections? Have you have you any sense of that at the moment, or do you think that it's still too much up in the air as to whether there will be uh, a, a support for the Conservatives or the Labour Party or the Liberal Democrats or, or one of the other parties? When they announced they were going to delay the local elections, I can't hide it from you. I was very happy because we were heading for a slaughter. Um, I don't. It was scheduled for around about May the third, wasn't it? Mm. And that, at that point, I think the Tories were about twenty points ahead in the polls. Keir had only really been in a job for the month, and during that month, we'd had all of the leaks come from the um, report, which was dismissed from the mm. EHRC report. So. I think, like, as we approach the 2021 elections, just purely because that was my baseline of what I was expecting to have to fight, coming into 2021, I'm actually incredibly optimistic. Mm. Um, Now, there's a few reasons why I'm optimistic, which is, first of all, um, we've had time for the honeymoon period to end for the Conservatives. They've won their election. They've done the Brexit thing. That was what the, you know, zeitgeist was as we were heading towards those elections. But now what we're heading towards is we've had about a year with Boris Johnson and majority Tory government where he said, you know, this is going to be a great year for Britain. Stop being that great. Uh, <laughs> we've, we've had um, a lot of undermining for like institutions and there's this political um, thing, which everyone talks about like effects and like vote or tribalness, but there's actually this one thing, which I think British society and its values really likes, which is this sense of fair play. Mm. I don't, I don't really see it discussed all that much, um, but it, it really came prevalent in the saga surrounding Dominic Cummings and his flight to Durham. There was this feeling from a lot of people that, you know, the Prime Minister's advisor had broken the law or at least undermined the spirit of the rules, and there was a lot of backlash from that. And now there's this census that the Prime Minister needs to be doing more to combat the COVID crisis, and he's just not doing it. And... I think that is starting to really break through with people that this guy who's in number 10 and the party and the people he, he would like you to elect onto the local council so he can enact his vision at a local level, he just doesn't really represent them. Mm. Now, that all being said, we still have got a bit of a mountain to climb because thinking that you know the Tories aren't brilliant does not equate to, oh, I'll vote for Kia. <laughs> because uh, we, we had this issue, didn't we, in the 2019 elections where both of the party leaders were pretty much despised across like the entire um, nation and we saw a surge in the likes of the Liberal Democrats and the Greens and some minor parties. And um, I, I don't know what your listener demographic is in terms of geography, but up here we've got to contend with... Um, there's, a, there's a large presence of like the um, SDP, um, the... Um, 
Yorkshire party. Uh, I, I did um, I did door knocking and office placement in 2019 for Rachel Reed's office, and we actually had to deal with uh, the English Democrats, which I don't think anyone heard of in about ten years because they, they they were slowly staging a comeback because appeared as lots and lots of like little parties, hmm. which we've got to be careful because whilst you know we we might laugh and joke about what they're like because the people who lead them tend to be quite ridiculous and the internal structures are a complete mess, but they, they can take votes away and that's what's important. So I think going into 2021 local elections, what we really need to show is the strengths. We, we've had a local council up in Wakefield, which uh, has been in control whilst we've had a Tory MP, and they've done a stunning job when it comes to dealing with the COVID crisis. Um, they, the system of food parcel delivery and also just cracking down on any kind of local outbreaks has actually led to their teams being nominated for awards nationally. And we just need to go on those kind of focus saying, look, we've been there for you when the community has been hit. Just give us another chance to continue to do that. I, I think that's what we need to start hitting home with because we've also got the mayoral elections coming up for West Yorkshire. Um, now, I, I, I'm not probably allowed to talk about my own preferences for that because, you know, no matter who wins, I will be out there door knocking for them to get in. Um, but I, I really think we need to start hitting into that sense of fair play. We, we need to show that we understand, you know, the values of um, West Yorkshire. And we need to show people that, you know, we've been there safeguarding these communities in local government throughout the whole crisis. Whilst the Prime Minister's advisor was driving off to Durham, we were around here making sure that, you know, people who were shielding could have food to eat. And we've been working tirelessly to make sure that people like my nana, who had to you know, shields and my manager who had to shield because he has a kidney condition that they were able to come back out into society. I, I think that really is the key for how we move forward in 2021 election by painting that narrative because narratives are always how political parties do well. They don't do well when they just say, no, here's the policies, have fun. We, we do well when we basically say, here's the policies, here, here's what we want to do with them. And here's why, because we want to create this. And, that, and I think that has got to be the core of what we do up here. Do you think that that um, sense of fair play is going to be key for Labour campaigning in more rural areas? Do you think that that's the sort of thing that needs uh, to be done in terms of getting uh, engagement up for the Labour Party in rural areas? Or do you think that there are other things that can also be done to uh, ensure further engagement for for Labour in those areas? Well, the first thing we could do for labour in rural areas is actually go out and campaign in rural areas. We don't do it. Um, and that, that's not because there aren't labour people out there. There are labour people out there. It's just rural CLPs have got this problem where the people who do the bulk of the door knocking, fit young people such as myself, well, at least I like to think I'm fit, um, you know, they don't stick around. Most people who are involved in the party, they go off because there's no jobs around in the rural seats. They go to towns and cities, and that's why Labour tends to do a bit better in places like Leeds and why that was a bit of a bulwark in the last election, because we had so many fantastic activists there. We, we need to start um, pushing and getting our activists to actually go out and door knock in these seats, which, you know, on the, on the actual just broad you know, spreadsheet of the votes, it looks like a bit of a massive uphill battle. But we've got to be prepared to make those uphill battles because one day we might win. The Tories knew this when they started recovering from the 1997 collapse. They didn't just go, oh, sod it, we're not campaigning anymore. They just, they, they, you know, they dug in there and they started winning it back. And that's what we got. And I, I think with Keir, we've got a good chance of that. I'm not sold on Keir's leadership completely because I'll be honest, I don't vote for him. I, I was a complete Lisa Nandy fan, but um, I've got to you know, stand by the democracy of the party and get on with the job. 
And part of that, I think, would be us implementing the GeoCOPL campaign. I was really lucky to actually talk to the activist for it, Elliot, on my podcast, Red Rose Reporting. Good plug. Um, <laughs> and I, I think it'd be a fantastic opportunity for like members who've gone to, say, I don't know, Hull, who from rural seats and they've gone away they've been involved in a labor uni club they've had training sessions and they know the way around digital technology they come back to the home clps and they get together and they start actually playing a local campaign and they get you know people out on the doors um again to my chat with jacob from guildford we discussed about the fact that they went to areas in 2019 that they'd never campaigned ever before even in like 2017 when they had their like high in terms of the vote share uh- just turning away from uh, UK politics for a moment, there are about, I think, 22 or 21 days until the US presidential election between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. What are your general feelings about the outcome of the election? Ooh, okay. Well, I'm first of all just going to give a quick shout out to my friend Connor Dockwa because he has appeared on a sub-series of Red Rose Point called Indulging in Politics and he's uh, the man for American political knowledge. He basically is why I know what I'm probably about to say. So, you know, I've first of all got to acknowledge him. Second of all, I think that what we're probably heading for is Biden absolutely winning the popular vote. There's no question about that. There's no way in hell Trump can do it because there's just not enough time in the campaign. There's no suspenses or anything. But I I think we could be in for a very interesting night on November the 3rd. Um, For those who obviously have been paying attention uh, to US politics, we all know that there's this big issue where, unlike every other election that we've known in our lifetimes, the winner might not be decided on the night. We're going to have to contend with the fact that mail ballots will be probably how a lot of people cast their votes. And in America, they're slack. They're not like um, Newcastle and Sunderland on local election nights where they've got the first result by (laughs) 10.45. They take like a few days. And Trump has done as much as he can to basically say, I sense the election will be rigged if these postal votes decide it. So if I win on the night, but then it says I lose, it's all a big fix. It's a rig. And both sides have got, um, on the US election and the fringes, have got these armed groups. Now, I've, I think that when I say that, there's probably about 50 people listening who are about to go, oh, the one group's way worse than the other. And yeah, it is. The, 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 the American right have really started like, you know, packing on the heat with these armed groups, like the Proud Boys and they're just ready to cause anarchy if their guy is uh, says, oh, um, I want, I was president, you guys voted for me, but this establishment that I've been fighting against has said that I'm not going to be president anymore because they don't like me. So that will just trigger God knows what, just armed clashes in the streets and what have you. So I, I think like, unless Biden really gets ahead, which some of the polls are saying he will do, and he actually wins on the night, I think we're in for like very dramatic results for this election. Um, I, I think it's comparable to that of 1912, where it's just chaotic, really. Mm. Uh, are you concerned at all about if the election or any part of the uh, election goes to the Supreme Court, that the Supreme Court, which, if Trump is able to um, confirm his re- replacement for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Amy Coney Barrett, if he's able to do that, that the Supreme Court could take the election uh, away from Biden and, and hand it to Trump? Is that something that you think is a possibility? Oh, God, that's a good question. 
I like to think it's not a possibility because I, I, I like to think that what will happen is on the night that Biden will surprise us all and he wins on the night and we don't have to think about this dark timeline. But because this is 2020, we're going to have this happen. Okay, so I, I think that in the case of the Supreme Court, um, I think it really just is 50-50 on that happening because, I mean, I'm trying to quickly recall what happened with Al Gore when he contested the election results in 2000 and obviously they had all these court cases, but I think it depends really on how like open the court is because mm. essentially if you've got this humongous televised event and the actual evidence has to be shown and it's shown to be just incredibly flimsy, then there is a chance that maybe one of the conservative judges might just go, this is ridiculous and just vote to end it. Equally, Biden might do something stupid, like actually just concede rather than go to the courts because he doesn't want to cause any more discord in the country, which is what Al Gore did in 2000. But um, I, I really, I really don't want to think about it because the, the thing with this whole election is it's increasingly like the rhetoric from some of the Republicans um, there's been this really overused term of fascist or Nazi because it's the easiest go between and everyone harps on about Godwin's law where if you talk about a Nazi, you've lost a political debate. <laughs> I, I think though some of the, the rhetoric from it though coming out is, is getting near that level of like strong man authoritarianism because the, the, there's this increasingly big line coming from the Republicans, which is we don't live in a democracy. We live in a republic. Now, that that sounds just like, oh, you're arguing over semantics, but the, the impact of having that style of mindset is when people talk about democracy and the need for, you know, the votes to matter, people just can just then turn around and say, no, it doesn't. Don't worry. And and that, that terrifies me because if America goes down that path, I, I fear it might not come out. But as I say, I hope to God that it doesn't come to pass. Turning to a more... Um positive uh, option if joe biden does win the election and becomes uh, president how do you think that that will impact on the potential trade deal between the uk and the us do you want long answer or the short answer either well the short answer is make it pretty bloody difficult um the bother is that Johnson, for the last year, he's been in, in number 10 and May before him, have really tried to create this special relationship type, type deal with Trump. And Johnson succeeded because, uh, unlike May, who Trump described as almost like a cold head mistress, he really gets on with uh, Johnson. So when you've essentially got Boris Johnson portrayed as Trump's biggest ally, it then becomes really difficult for you to um, then flip around and go, actually, I really like you, Biden. And, and Johnson's got history with Biden. Um, it was reported in the Times that Biden still really holds a grudge against Johnson for describing that uh, the only reason Obama didn't like Brexit was because of his Kenyan heritage, which is just a reference to the empire. Mm. <laughs> and it's and this is one of the problems you've got with a guy like Johnson who likes to make these big, ridiculous, pompous claims because it grabs headlines, which is at the time it seems fine because he does what you want. It gives you attention. But um, it's then a few years down the line, you're going to have to face the consequences of what you've said. Because it, what it's done is it's meant that the potential president of the United States does not view you as either a very sensible or a very likable person. And it might mean that somebody like Angela Merkel or Macron, who's kind of distanced themselves from Trump as much as they can politically, like you, you don't see Trump tweeting constantly like, oh, thank you, Merkel, big buds. You only see that with Johnson. So it might be that Biden goes over to like, you know, one of those European leaders as a more steadfast um, ally, especially as 
the potential chaos of uh, Brexit uh, grows. Well, coming towards the end of the podcast, it's been great to speak to you, George. And I've got uh, one final question for you. Now, of course, we've been discussing uh, coronavirus throughout the podcast and uh, potentially as figures horrifically continue uh, to rise, we might be uh, facing another uh, lockdown. But regardless of what happens in the future, a lot of things that we previously would have been able to do before coronavirus, uh, we haven't been able to do. So my question to you is this, when things, hopefully soon, get back to normal, what one thing that you haven't been able to do because of all this are you most looking forward to being able to do? I'm going to get all of my friends together. We're going to go in a convoy of cars um, out of different, you know, households. Mm. We're going to go to this beach I know called uh, Fraserthorpe on the um, Humberside coast. And we're going to go and have a barbecue with my friends and their dogs. And we're just going to stay for as long as we can. Um, that's we, we sometimes do it during the summertime. And it's one of the best things ever. Because like the Yorkshire coastline is one of the most underrated areas on earth. It's, mm. it's so beautiful and windswept. And going there, there's like these abandoned World War One bunkers uh, from when they thought the Germans might try and invade invade via the North Sea. So there's these concrete structures, and you're there, and being there with like you know the people I care about the most in the world, and essentially away from everything else is one of the most perfect feelings you I can experience in my life. And I can't wait to be able to do that again with them. Well, I think that that sounds like an absolutely fantastic thing to do. Hopefully you will be able to do that soon. Uh, for people who are interested to find out more about you and Red Rose reporting, where should people go? Thank you. I'm going to do, I'll, I'll do the spiel. So <laughs> if you want to follow Red Rose Reporting, primarily we're active on Twitter. You can find us at Red Reporting. However, if you have enjoyed just my nonsensical ramblings and you want to see what I'm up to all the time, you can find me at Fabian Fairhurst because alliteration is key. Well, thank you once again for coming on the podcast, George. It's been great having you on. Thank you for having me on, Will. It's been a pleasure to speak to you and I hope that your audience has found what the things I've said at least a little bit interesting. I'm sure they have. Fantastic. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you've enjoyed it, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbeam and Amazon Music. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Debated Podcast, like us on Facebook, Debated Podcast, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, whether about appearing on an episode of the podcast or commenting on an episode that you've listened to, you can do so at thedebatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I hope you listen to the next one.